Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast as we make a very enjoyable and we hope and pray instructional and useful and and uplifting journey through the Psalms. We have got a great Psalm today, although it's a short one. We're we're a bit out of step. There's There's a time gap between the recording and editing and releasing of these podcast episodes and this one really needed to go out last week because... It uh, has, I think, a useful, interesting, nice tie with Mother's Day, and it's Psalm 131. Uh, my name's Cameron. Uh, I'm a teacher down here in Launceston, and I'm joined by two of my great friends. Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. Uh, I work in the courts in Launceston, attend the Launceston Seventh Adventist Church, and looking forward to our discussion of Psalm 131 today. And I'm Lachlan. I live in Sydney and work at Macquarie University, and I regularly attend Castle Hill Adventist Church. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to have everyone here listening. If you have any comments from today's discussion, don't forget that you can email us uh, at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'd love to hear from you. To get a sense of what you read into the discussion and the psalms that we talk about and also if you have any suggestions, if you have a favourite psalm that we've not dealt with that you would like us to, to do or some idea to nominate, please email it through. Today's psalm's a bit shorter in fact, the psalms we've been discussing have generally been getting shorter and shorter because we keep running out of time when we record these. I think we're going to have to start splitting psalms over multiple episodes. Last week, we talked about Psalm 127, which has five verses in it, and we were unable at the end of our discussion to summarize it in much less than than the length of the psalm itself. Maybe we'll have better luck today. Uh, there's three of us here today. Luke is not with us. Uh, again, schedules across international borders didn't align but he'll join us next week. Perhaps we'll take one verse each as we read Psalm 131. All right. I'll start with verse one from the uh, NRSV. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, Hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now, we've commented previously um, in the Psalms with some of the ones we've discussed, particularly some of the more difficult, that they, they don't bear much resemblance to songs we sing in church. I think that's not true of this psalm. I could well imagine this psalm being set to music, but I, I can't recall any instance of it. No, I don't know of any instance of it either. What stands out of, of this psalm for you, Locke? Are there, are there any ideas that jump to it? It's very short, very punchy. Yeah, what jumped out at me was the wording of my heart is not lifted up and my eyes are not raised too high. So it seemed to be, that seemed to be speaking not of a exaggerated ecstatic experience, but rather of a more calm, a little bit more subdued experience of God's presence or of life. And perhaps that's something that some of our contemporary church music gets wrong sometimes in that it it can fall a little too easily into making it sound like everything is always at the maximum levels of excitement and passion and conviction. So that's what jumped out at me a little bit. I'd like to come back perhaps a little later to the occupying myself with things great and marvellous, or in this case, not doing so, because as a research scientist, I'm not entirely sure (laughs) what... What I do with that verse. But while we were talking about Mother's Day, clearly here in verse 2, there is a, a mothering imagery employed for the experience of God's presence. And it's not the only time that that's done in the Psalms. 
isn't there? There's the reference to a God collecting his children like like a mother hen. Yeah. And it's interesting here, it's a weaned child with its mother. So it's um, it's a child, but it's not in that very ultra-complete physical dependent state that an infant might be needing full support in every single way. It seems to me a strangely specific stage of life there. A child, not matured, not an adult, but also a weaned child walking. There's a certain independence, but a certain dependence. I I wonder what's the difference between the weaned child and the unweaned child that the psalmist is trying to get at. It's not really relevant to our discussion, but it's almost certain that the child was weaned at a much older age than in today's Western cultures, partly because, you know, milk is such an efficient food source and it's so nourishing. And, you know, we we can go and take any number of supplements and baby foods straight off the shelf, which they couldn't do. So I'm guessing probably age three or four would be the, the age they had in mind. Yeah, certainly. I, I think you're right, Cam. And certainly this would be a stage, I would imagine, where a child is mobile, is walking. Anyone who's been a parent of such a, a child through that transition uh, <laughs> recognises the the massive level of, of independence that comes just with the ability to move where they want to go. Mm. But obviously it's nowhere near full independence. It's still enormously dependent on parents. I guess in this psalm it's focusing on the mother. The picture that it creates for me, uh, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. It, the picture that it creates for me is a toddler snuggled into the uh, the side with the mother's arm around them, sleepy perhaps, contented, sitting and dependent but trusting. Mm. Perhaps listening to Harry McClary for the 50th time that day. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it could well be listening to a story being read. Yeah, I like what you said there, Ken, actually. There's an interesting detail. You snuggled in, but for a child of this age, there's a certain level of choice about that, of deliberateness. A very early newborn infant is regularly snuggled to its mother, but there's no sense of freedom or choice or autonomy. The mother is dictating basically how much snuggling is happening and so on. Whereas the picture you painted in words was one where there had been some volition. There was that desire element there in a slightly more conscious sense than, than the sort of raw needs of an infant. Yeah, that raw needs uh, was one of the contrasts that I saw. The unweaned infant crying because it's hungry, crying because it's uncomfortable, crying and unable to express yeah. what uh, it wants in any meaningful uh, way, except perhaps to the, to the mother who uh, is able to interpret the cry, and a desperation almost yeah. in, in the unweaned infant. Yeah. And yet on this, this one is, like you say, Locke, a, a desire to be close yeah. and not to make demands, but simply to be with uh, the mother. I um, resonate very strongly with your descriptions, Ken, that the most helpless I've ever felt was after the birth of our third child. Our first was an emergency Caesar. My wife had preeclampsia, so we felt very lucky to have the excellent health care that we did provided to her. Um, That was good. 
Then Tanner, the middle one, I uh, don't remember quite as clearly. With Matthew, uh, for some reason, cause, because Mel had an emergency Caesar for the first birth and Tanner was within two years, so she'd had another Caesar. Once you've had two Caesars, it becomes more and more risky to, to have a natural birth. So it had, Matthew was a Caesar as well. And they send the baby up with the father. I mean, it only takes five minutes to get the baby out. Amazing uh, experience being in the operating room. They sent the baby up with me to wait in the room while they stitched Mel up. And they said they'd be around half an hour. Now, I checked on my watch afterwards. They were only 40 minutes, so it wasn't that much more than half an hour. But I was holding Matthew, and he was screaming. And it felt like 10 years before Mel arrived, and I was completely helpless. And I just thought, what would happen if something happened to Mel now on the operating table? And she didn't come up. Like, I was just completely, completely out of my depth. It was the most, it was the most anxious I've ever been. And isn't that a, um, a an interesting contrast with the with the weaned child and the calmed and quieted soul? That anxiety that you felt, mm. certainly understandable in that situation. I yeah. have to say. Well, there's something very liberating, of course, for fathers once kids get weaned, and you actually become useful for comfort. <laughs> I mean, everyone told me that kids grow up fast, and you have to cherish all the moments, and I just don't believe it's true for the first three months. It's hardly true for the first six months. No, that's what I've heard the first three months referred to as the fourth trimester. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to come back, Locke, to your comment about the, the proud and the haughty and not concerning yourselves with great matters. Just before you do, it's very interesting on this. I've turned open to the Adventist Bible commentary on this psalm, mm. and it says something slightly more figurative in its reading of these um, verses we've been looking at with the motherhood imagery. It picks up the weaned child and it just it just says the psalmist had been weaned away from worldly ambitions and desires and now enjoyed security and contentment in God which is a a nice sentiment it's interestingly a little bit more a little bit less literal and a bit more figurative than where we were thinking true i wonder whether there's a connection between them though a clear connection that it's our clamoring after worldly desires, our clamoring after reputation, security, comfort, those things uh, that cause us anxiety, that make us more like the unweaned child uh, when we see the contentment because of a correct view of God, uh, that he's a, a mother who cares. He is a mother who cares. <laughs> uh, <laughs> interesting male perspective on that. That he's a God who doesn't lack, that he does supply all our needs, that we can have that calmness and, and quiet presence. Yeah, I think that's really that's really well said, Ken. Yeah, there's there's also the notion you know, God gives rest to those he loves. Yes, it was our psalm last week. God grants sleep to those he loves, um, in verse 2 of Psalm 127. Uh, there's also that idea coming through it's true that there's some volition on the part of the weaned child coming to its parent to its mother but so much of that peace and security that the child is sort of relishing enjoying doesn't come from them uh, it comes from the mother yeah so when i read this psalm to my wife and i asked what she thought would be a, a fruitful avenue for discussion she pointed out that the four presenters, and there's, like I say, there's only three of us here t today, but the four presenters of this podcast are singularly ill-equipped to 
take this psalm on board because I think it would be fair to say that all of us enjoy thinking about great matters. Yeah, it's interesting. The The message puts that phrase, the first verse here of Psalm 131, I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. Does that include plans for kit-built, home-built planes, or...? <laughs> Clearly not. There's nothing grandiose about that. It's just an ordinary activity. Ask my 17-year-old daughter, who didn't realise when she went to school that people had cars in garages. They, She thought everybody had aeroplanes <laughs> until she visited somebody else's house. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. It, I'm not even sure if it is compatible with the sentiment of other psalms. I seem to remember, and I've jotted down a few psalms that we could just turn to, some psalms where almost the exact opposite sentiment is expressed. I'm thinking of Psalms 8 or Psalm 19. Just flick through those psalms, Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, and do you sense any conflict between those psalms and this idea of not concerning ourselves with great matters or or things too wonderful for us? Right, I've opened to Psalm 8. Yeah, you're right. So Psalm 8 is a psalm that I know has been put to music. I've sung it before, I think. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honour, and given him dominion over the works of your hands. So it's very uplifting, isn't it? And it seems to be a sentiment slightly closer to my natural approach to the world, as, as someone who professionally engages in discoveries about the natural world and how the universe works. I like to think that that activity is a, in some ways, a, as well as a scientific endeavor, it's in some ways a spiritual endeavor. And famous scientists have used phrases such as thinking God's thoughts after him to describe the privilege of their scientific exploits. And so I have to admit that I like that Psalm 8 quite a lot. And I find the, the verse from this evening in Psalm 131 slightly less resonant with my own experience. How does it compare to Psalm 19, Ken? Well, it compares quite closely to Psalm 19. If one goes, uh, starts, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. I'll skip a couple of verses because it's um, clear the theme of those mm. first verses. The the interesting one uh, then, uh, Lachlan is as you say you're investigating those things how the yeah. how things work uh, every day. It's obviously the case that the psalmist is taking a very real pleasure out of that feeling of smallness, the feeling of being. It's the feeling you get on an empty beach or if anyone's lucky enough to have flown an aeroplane at about 5,000 feet on a calm day, there's just a few clouds around. I need to think of metaphors that are more resonant with people who don't fly. Good luck. 
but that feeling of just being some you know small thing in in a vast immeasurable place isn't is a real sense of pleasure for me it's part of the pleasure of summiting a mountain you know, standing up on a peak and and the part of it is the view but part of it is exactly what you say that feeling of context and of wow you know from here i can see things are much bigger the world is bigger or standing on a cliff looking at the ocean yeah um, just see, seeing it raging below and seeing it going on to the horizon mm. yeah chesterton wrote in the start of his book orthodoxy which is a great book he had an anecdote or a a story, a, a book that he'd always wanted to write. He said, I've always wanted to write this book, but I've never had time. So I'm just going to tell you what would happen in this book were I to have time to write it. And this, this book is about a man who sets off to discover new lands and through an error of navigation thinks that he's coming across, you know, some savage jungle in some far off land when, when in point of fact, he's, he's approaching the coast of England. And he eagerly, you know, climbs up to the deck of his ship with a telescope and looks out at the beach and sees you know what are they what are those rows of buildings are they are they pagan temples from some you know heathen hitherto uncontacted people and what's that funny structure up on the beach uh, on the headland and what's this and then when he gets closer he suddenly realizes that it's the beach off norfolk or somewhere and that the the these crude you know ramshackled savage huts are really the the bathing huts for all the bathers and that that funny structure on the headland is a lighthouse and he's actually arrived home. And Chesterton said, now you might suppose this man in my story would be disappointed to discover that he's actually back home. But you've totally underestimated him. He, he, the person in this story is incredibly grateful. You know, what could be better than to simultaneously have all the, the sort of savage excitement of exploration and the unknown, coupled with all the comfort of coming home and of familiar objects, and to have both of those experiences at the same time. He said this is, you know, an experience, you know, what, what better joy could there be to think you're discovering New South Wales and then to realise with a, with a happy gush of, you know, warm emotions that you've actually just arrived at old South Wales. And then he made the insight, which is, I think, relevant to our discussion now, that he saw this to be the principal task of a philosophy. How are we to at once feel mystified and enthralled and bewildered by the universe and yet simultaneously be at home in it? And the, the sentiments we're picking up in these psalms speak to those opposite needs we have. In Psalm 131, it speaks so strongly of the comforts of home that being with God is a imparts to our life such a, a grounding sense of belonging that equips us to go out into the world comfortable and, and safe in ourselves, knowing, knowing our father, or in this psalm, our mother, cares for us. The psalms that I pointed to you earlier seem to speak to perhaps not so much an opposing sentiment as a complementary sentiment. This need we have for wonder, for amazement, the great thrill we have at being somewhere new and discovering a new idea and a new thought and being being out of our depth and just sort of reveling in the wonder of it all. I like that. I do see the theme of humility coming out here in Psalm 131. And, and perhaps this is just a helpful reminder. It's a, 
it's an important element of any of the other activities, whether it's scientific research or flying a kit-built plane uh, that that might be related to some of our thinking about things that we consider great and marvelous or or laying lofty plans. Even amongst all of those things, which may be just central to the being of certain people, it is important to remain humble throughout. I think that's uh, quite so. Indeed, it reminds me of um, Job 42 and verse 3, when God spoke to Job uh, and pointed out all of the uh, marvels of creation. And Job's response was, uh, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Hmm. Well, that's so similar, isn't it? Here in, in the ESV, Psalm 131 verse 1 speaks of things too marvellous for me. Mm. As does the NRSV. Too great and too marvellous for me. Of course, at the end of the day, God is great and beyond comprehension. But nonetheless, one might think still worthy of occupying ourselves with. Mm. Yeah, and there's the concept that, you know, eternity is never going to be boring if we're in his company because there'll always be new ideas, which I certainly hope to be true. Well, likewise, I think there's this picture of, of heaven as a, a static place, even when one rejects the picture of uh, sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Nonetheless, still some of the pictures uh, that we have of heaven seem to me to be far too mundane, uh, even if one thinks about swimming with whales and dolphins and travelling to other planets and perhaps other universes, if such things exist, one could get bored with those things uh, for eternity. You've touched on a sore spot for me, Ken, because, and our listeners may find very little value in this, but I, I find a lot of those images involving animals to be very difficult, partly because, you know, if I can go up and touch a lion with no risk, then in a very real sense, the animal I'm touching is not a lion as we know it here. And nor do I think that the experience would prove that exciting. If it's possible to fly, I'm terrified at the idea of getting to heaven and being able to fly without having to put in effort because I, I enjoy the process of learning and applying and you know, using knowledge and being creative and, and all the things it takes to be a pilot. I find rewarding. The honest truth is I'm going to sulk <laughs> yeah. if, if I get to heaven and I can fly without, <laughs> without an aeroplane. Because part of the fun is mastering the system. Well, it gets worse than that. I've heard some people claim that when we get to heaven, we can, we'll be able to know anything we want because we just ask God for the answers. But what if, <laughs> what if the process of exploration and discovery is itself incredibly uplifting and rewarding and you really quite like that process and the idea that you can just get the answer to any question you had immediately just upon asking it that that might not actually be quite as satisfying <laughs> well, it doesn't seem to be in keeping with god's character either and and this has some humorous notes and some very serious notes you know people thought that uh the bubonic plague was was a god's direct involvement there was an actual testable answer to that hypothesis which was kill the rats and the bubonic plague's going to go away and you wonder that god might have told them that God seems to, I don't know whether he enjoys it or whether he requires it or he grants to us the dignity of, 
of causation, the dignity of discovery, the dignity of being autonomous, that he seems to enjoy us learning things, even sometimes very difficult things, on our own. And indeed, that seems to have been uh, the way that the Garden of Eden was. Uh, He didn't leave us static uh, in the Garden of Eden. He gave us work to do. That is the perfect state, to work. And as Ecclesiastes suggests, what God does in that perfect state is to grant enjoyment and satisfaction Mm. uh, in that work. Uh, So it's not simply a matter of clicking your fingers and everything that you want happens. It really is process of growth, and that growth will continue. Perfection, in the heavenly sense, is not a static state to be reached. It is a state of ongoing and infinite growth with enjoyment in that. It's a very interesting comment, Ken. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, The Great Divorce. It's very short. It's very good. It's an imagined account of someone uh, he has a dream. The, the author said, I had a dream. And I had a dream that I was in this place. And he doesn't give it a name, but it becomes apparent that this place is hell. And uh, there's a weekly bus trip that goes from hell to heaven. And anyone who wants to can hop on the bus and go up to heaven. And I think I've referred to this pre- previously in the podcast. Uh, but the most people who leave hell and go up to heaven decide they don't like it and rather go back to hell. And one of the reasons is the defining characteristic of hell that makes it hell is that you get whatever you want without trying but that it doesn't satisfy. Mm. And I think there's a lot of truth in there about the, the human condition. And in a sense, we, we experience that even when we achieve something after having worked for it, because we look at it as being that next thing that will give us satisfaction, that will make us complete. Again, I'm sorry to use a story about aircraft, but I remember reading stories ever since I was a, a boy about flying and about the the wonderful sense of uh, satisfaction and excitement that one experiences when you first fly an aeroplane on your own, when you're first solo. I remember my first solo, and while it was satisfying, it didn't meet the expectations that had been brought up by the descriptions of all these people who had said what a wonderful and inspiring experience it was. It was satisfying to have done it. Uh, It was a good thing to have done it. And it felt like I'd accomplished something. But then it also lost something immediately because that which I had been seeking to do, I had now done. And I could never have that first experience again. Uh, It was lost to me. Uh, And so the joy and excitement, uh, such as it was, immediately left and the satisfaction was in the past. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. The thought occurred to me, Ken, while you were, while you were saying that this image of a child trusting in its mother and resting in its mother's arms might be extended to cover the, the sorts of ideas we're talking about now. A child doesn't just trust its mother for food and for, I don't know, this is a wind child, so, you know, or protection. One of the things that a child trusts its mother for is for stimulation. Children have active minds. Why? 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 Why this? Why that? And certainly in the traditional Jewish home, the mother has a very large stake in the responsibility for a child's education. 
and it's it is a need we have as humans to be stimulated. I'm reading a book at the moment about um, deaf people, people born deaf. It's called Seeing Voices by who's it by Ken Oliver Sacks. Oliver Sacks, a neurologist. Yeah, and and he talks about what happens to a brain if it's deprived of language. If some people are born deaf and never learn language, and it has a massively debilitating effect on the on their capacity to think abstract thoughts so you know what we are describing here you know that sense of longing the sense of wonder and adventure the sense of a new task to do so that we don't just live in the past but there's always something new coming around the corner that that is one of the things that a child expects of its mother so i would like to at this stage point out that psalm 131 verse 1 is not a commandment. It does not say, thou shalt not occupy yourself with things that are great and marvellous to think about. It's connected to verse 2 in the ESV with a but. So it's, I don't do these things, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. So there's a bit of a contrast going on. It seems to me that it is speaking not so much of trying to judge the merits of certain hobbies or career paths or even dismiss the kind of people who do like to think about grand and marvelous things it's very much saying remember in amongst all of those things remember that you're not the ruler of everything and what does the message have to say in this first verse god i'm not trying to rule the roost i don't want to be king of the mountain and I have a feeling that that's really the the hub of the issue here in Psalm 131. It's talking about putting yourself in place. Look, and and the that's clear from the uh, the words things that are too great and too marvelous for me. It is not that we are to ignore great and marvelous things, to completely abandon any contemplation of great and marvelous things, but it is to recognise uh, our finitude the limitations we have as human beings. It's interesting, there's another Psalm 139 with verse uh, verses 5 and 6. He's talking about God uh, earlier. You've searched me and you know me. Uh, you know when I sit and rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, my going out and lying down, and you hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. And verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So it's a common theme in the Psalms, or at least it's a theme that exists in two places. Mm. And it seems tied both here and there with the idea that God himself is beyond our comprehension. Oh, no, just hang on, Locke. That's going a bit too far because I belong to a denomination that knows the truth. And we're very, we know, we have pretty clear pictures about what God expects, even, even down to some very fine details and nuances that separate us from other denominations, other people of faith, uh, certainly from, from non-religious people. You're not suggesting perhaps that God might be even bigger than our conception of him? Well, <laughs> I, I might be. I might be. Let, let, me, let me think about that. What I so when I say God's beyond comprehension, I will admit that there are things I think that we can know of God, and the Bible helps us learn of those things. But yeah, I do, I do genuinely think that these sentiments in the Psalms are a helpful reminder that there are things we can't hope to know because, as the message puts it, we're we're not king of the mountain. 
Well, I, I had an a interesting conversation with a friend recently, and we were describing this this phenomena. How, how do we know or trust that we, we claim to have some knowledge of God, but he is obviously something that's, that's beyond our complete understanding. And uh, how do we know that what we believe is true? And it was, it was an interesting discussion, only partially resolved, I think, but, but we it came up with some interesting ideas in the process. I mean, you, Lachlan, are hard, and you, Ken, are hard uh, to know in an absolute sense. Every person we meet is something that's beyond our comprehension. If we're honest, ourselves are a mystery to ourselves. Mm. And, and saying that I know you is a very different thing to saying that I know I can predict with 100% success what your opinion will be. Uh, I am sure how you will act in certain situations. And the disciples had trouble with this. Oh, that lady spent money on perfume. That should have gone to the poor. Like, you would have thought that was a safe bet. Yeah. And I oh, got it wrong again. And, you know, who's this person? Shall we call down fire from heaven on him? No, oh, rats, we've got it wrong again. And <laughs> they were completely bewildered by Christ regularly. I think they could have said, after living with him for three years, that they knew him. But it was in a relational sense. And it is important that we remember that the God we worship is is not encapsulated in any creed or set of doctrines or church tradition. He's, he's not tame. He's not our pet. There is a sense of, you know, a mystery. So maybe there's a, there's a sense in Psalm 131... Maybe the psalmist is saying, I'm not going to pretend to know complicated things. There's a bit of an arrogance in saying, yes, I understand everything in the universe and I know how it works. And perhaps we ought to bring that humility with us when we, when we do come to sit in awe and wonder of our God. Yeah. I think it's very interesting in verse 3 that there's a beautiful rhythm. There's a... I just love it. In fact, it's even better in the message than it is in the ESV, just with, with in terms of the rhythm and the and the pattern of words. Psalm 131 verse 3 in the message says, Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. So, waiting and hoping. Both those key words are repeated at least two times, and hope is, is three times. The ESV has the same sentiment, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It doesn't emphasize the waiting quite as much. I think there's something really beautiful about that idea of wait with hope. I like that. One of the things that sometimes bothers me is when we are asked whether we have an assurance of salvation, whether we have this certainty. And I'm often interested that we sing a hymn that says we have this hope. We have a hope. And one has a hope when there is uncertainty. One has assurance when there's certainty. And sometimes I think that we we are a bit too haughty and that our eyes are raised a bit too high about our knowledge when we think we can attain that certainty of assurance. Not only when we think we can, but when we think we ought to when we think that a lack of assurance on a whole range of issues represents a failing on the part of the Christian. The the hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, is very much to the point. The thing we are assured of is is that Christ is ours, that he gave himself to us. And I think if someone 
if someone were to ask me if I had assurance of salvation, I would say, well, uh, there's many things in my life at the moment that I need salvation from, including unhelpful habits. I, I do have assurance of Christ, tentative but growing, and I think that if I place my life in his hands, it's in safe hands. And that seems to me the sort of assurance spoken of in, in that hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. I do think we're badly in need of a hymn, Blessed Unassurance, that lists all the things that we don't have assurance about. We, we don't have assurance of a healthy, long life. We don't have assurance of material wealth here on earth. We don't have assurance that we'll find things easy. We don't have assurance that, that we won't be misunderstood by other people. We don't have assurance that we might not catch the COVID virus. There are lots of things that we don't have assurance from. But but getting back to this psalm, this psalm doesn't claim assurance about everything. It doesn't say that the child solved all mysteries. It's almost the opposite. The child's this like a child. I, I'm not claiming to have solved all these things, but I am finding comfort from this mother figure in the psalm. And there I have placed my hope. Well. It's a short psalm. It's kept us busy. There's one or two other comparisons I'd like to do. But unless either of you have a suggestion for a psalm. I do have a psalm for, uh, to suggest for next week. Right. What is it? Psalm 108 was suggested to me because I was commenting on the fact that we've been doing the Sabbath School podcast, but of course we've not been following the lesson pamphlet directly. We've been stepping through the psalms. And in previous episodes, we've explained some of why we're finding that to be valuable. But coming up in the Adventist Sabbath School pamphlet are a set of discussions about the creation story. And Psalm 108 picks up a whole lot of phrases and images that hearken to that creation story and mirror it in places and refer back to it in places. And if we record that for the next episode, then it will be essentially in sync with that part of the discussion in this quarter Sabbath School lesson. Right, well, that sounds like a good idea, Locke. And Psalms 108 begins with, My heart is steadfast, O God. Which ties in, obviously, with the discussion we've just had on Psalm 131. The psalm I was going to suggest was one by way of contrast. Perhaps we can put this for the week after. The psalm I was suggesting was Psalm 13. And I, I was wondering... In what sense Psalm 13 is, is compatible with Psalm 131, which has, which has quite a different tone? Well, they're numerically very similar, Cam. 131 just has an extra one on the end. Oh, obviously, it's very close. Um, <laughs> well, let's do Psalm 108 for next week, and we might do Psalm 13 for the week after. It's been a while since we looked at one of the bleaker Psalms. And uh, we want to make sure that our discussion is representative of, of the Psalms as a whole. Though obviously, there are many uplifting Psalms in the Psalms as well. Can, can I, before we finish, I wonder whether it might be a good idea to raise some points for further contemplation and discussion, which I think we haven't had time to get to today. And there are two that I think arise. One is, as well as not occupying ourselves with things too great and too marvellous, we can also have a false humility. And when and how might that arise? We can have an, say, we can be proud of our inabilities. We can say how terrible and what a great sense of sinfulness and inadequacy we have. 
as a sense of making us look better, so much a better Christian yes. for it. And I was, I was, I was offered the the award for the most humble young man of our church, but I declined it, which qualified me for the most humble church member of all. <laughs> so yeah, well, uh, I which, they gave me a humility prize, but I wore the badge, so they had to take it off me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's that false humility is not is not something that children practice. They're not quite old enough to play those games. Maybe that's one other reason why why the, this child with its mother image is employed. But yes, there is there is a sense in which we can sort of exaggerate. Uh, it, it is possible to impress other people by mm. being humble, and that's that's the root problem. And and I wonder whether there's another thing that we could think about here and. What is involved in calming and quieting my soul? Because that's something clearly that David says he has done. I have calmed and quieted my soul. I don't know whether you've ever taken the time to watch what happens with your thoughts, to sit and look at your thoughts as they come and go, to think about how you're feeling, to contemplate what's happening in your body and as you're thinking about things. Uh, It's an interesting exercise. There's a great movement uh, in the modern world of of mindfulness. Is that what David's talking about? Is he talking about something different? How does one quiet and calm one's soul? That's a really good question, Ken. I really hope we have some listeners who have something thoughtful to add and send us an email. I look forward to hearing the further discussion that flows from that. Well, um, let us wrap it up there. We're running out of time. Now, as uh, I think we've forgotten to do for the last couple of episodes, we, we forgot to pray at the start. So enthusiastic were we to jump into this psalm that we're losing track of our schedule. So I might wrap up with a prayer and we'll leave it there. Dear Father in heaven, we want to come to you. We thank you. We praise you for being the source of comfort and security in our, our lives. We stand in awe of you and amazed at your greatness. We so enjoy being overawed by your goodness and by your love. We ask that our knowledge of you, that we gain as we sit and talk with friends, as we think, as we read your word, that that knowledge would change us and empower us to go out and make the world a better place. Amen. Amen. I'm never going to stop you praying to either finish or start, Cam, but I sense that God, when we're talking about the Psalms, takes the entire discussion as a prayer. Yeah, I I hope so. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can get in touch with your comments to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'll be back again next week with another interesting discussion about the Psalms.